This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. The Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you, Matt and Patrick here. Uh, later on, Alan Miller this hour. He's got a new book out. Yeah, amazing. He's got a brand new one out. He's got two fiction pieces of fiction. I'm going to talk to him about both of those books. That's coming up here in about a half an hour. Uh, Patrick Cooligan joins Brett. He'll be in studio as well in the 4 o'clock hour. Patrick, how are you, my friend? Doing well. Uh, with a pretty busy holiday weekend, I was working up at the National Sports Center. Oh, was, spent, it, was it a big? Uh, was it a big uh, um, uh, event up there, or like a soccer tournament or something? It was a hockey oh. weekend tournament that I was there. I spent about uh, twelve hours there on a Sunday. Had myself a fantastic after meal at the Old Piper Inn, though. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I was, I, I hit the fair. I did my pickling yesterday. It's Labor Day. It's kind of where it works. Although, I mean, I got to tell you the truth. I'm a little bit, I couldn't find any of the real small ones, man. I was a little too late on that. I think that's more on me. I think that's more on me not the, the fine farmers at the farmer's market in Minneapolis. Uh, I, no, I, uh, I got the pickling done. I went to the fair. Uh, first of all, if I can, we actually, uh, breaking, I don't know if breaking news or anything like this. The fair, because it was so hot. Now, I went on Friday, and Friday the attendance was pretty high. Okay, I think they're at 190. The record is 209, so about 20,000 less than they were. But it was still hot. The heat on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday absolutely killed attendance. Absolutely killed attendance. Um, and to a point where the actual attendance is actually less than last year, which is pretty remarkable considering... I think they were only, before Friday, they were only a few thousand, you know, 10,000, 20,000 from the, you know, from the record attendance at that same point. So just the heat kept everyone home. Only 119,000 people showed up yesterday. Is that the lowest total? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. 119 yesterday, uh, 141 uh, on Sunday, which is basically a hundred thousand less than their record, so it wasn't even close. And then they did have a, a two hundred thousand on Saturday, but still, once again, seventy thousand less. So their total attendance at the state fair uh, was one million eight hundred thirty-five thousand eight hundred twenty-six. Last year was in one hundred eight hundred forty-two thousand two hundred twenty-two. So down, but it's amazing. And once again, not COVID. The heat, it was brutal. And there are areas of that fair where to be out in a hot day is just cruel. Heritage, the Heritage Park area, Heritage Square, the Midway, around the dairy barns and all that stuff, there's just no trees down there. And so, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's nice on the east side of the fairgrounds and up on the north side of the fairgrounds. But the west side of the fairgrounds, it's just brutal. And there's, yeah, I, I, I know a lot of people who were planning on going that last week and who ended up saying, you know what, I'm not going to go out and do that. It was it was brutal. Although they apparently, <laughs> they still did have a line for the Amish donut that was down the street. That, they, that, that donut stand was up by the Eco Building, so on the east side. 
I ran. I, I started walking past. I noticed there was this line, and I'm like, "Is this line for the pickle pizza? Because they're in the wrong, facing the wrong direction." That was like a two-block line for a donut. I heard about this in the news, and I I didn't even notice when I was uh, when I went to the fair a couple of times. So that's just kind of wild to hear about. Uh, the I, I will say that the fried green tomato sandwich un. Believable. Get that next year. Farmer, farmer, labor, diner hall. There, you got to have that again. You got to have that again. That was just amazing. Um, I will make this plea. Now, there are other radio hosts in this town who like to aggressively go after stroller guy, where they have people that come on in and they'll have a big stroller and they'll, you know, kind of take things up. I'm, I'm not too bothered by that because I have been there. I've been in places where I've had a young kid, but when I have a stroller out, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a stroller out. My kid was maybe three, maybe I think uh, probably, I mean, I'd probably put him on my shoulders if it was three, but you know, at least, you know, two, three years old. That's when I had, it. that was the end of it. When I was out on Friday, the amount of people with a, and I don't care if it was mylar and metal bars and things, you had a, a, a horse and cart. You had the cart minus the horse. You had this two and a half or three and a, three three and a half foot wide cart that basically was functioning as a nap zone, not for young kids, but kids eight and nine who were basically getting pulled around. Dude, what are you doing? I mean, okay. I, you know, I, okay, fine. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give every one of you the out, which I shouldn't, but I'll give every one of you. There's some other mitigating circumstance, which requires you to have to bring basically a covered wagon minus the covered with you to the state fair. Fine. You know, it's I I get it that you're, you're there's something that's something up with you know, you know you know the you know the kids whatever fine, but you, you know you, how many times were you just because there were six or seven of them like a freaking wagon train, completely blocking off the road, preventing people from being able to get around. I mean, it's getting pretty obscene. And and as a matter of fact, my daughter made the point like, how are they even getting that through security? Because if I wanted to smuggle something in, that, that's how you do it. You smuggle them in on those big carts because there's just so many parts to them that you, even if you inspect them, you probably wouldn't see something. You could smuggle anything in there, like a gun or something like that. I, I'm kind of surprised they let those big ones in. So, you know, it's I, I don't – I've not been one of these guys who sits out here and comments about, ah, oh, the carts, the strollers, how many – gosh, it's horrible – but man, it's it's almost like there's a design to as people complain about it, make it as wide as possible. And if you're pulling your kid in a cart, which is basically the size of a 1957 Thunderbird, and you know, so your so your kid can have a king size bed nap while they get pulled around the fair. I mean, come on, you just that's to a point you're almost being selfish. Now, I made my kids walk. They had a good time. They were fine. I knew it wasn't going to be long times out there, but that's what I did. And I, you know, I haven't raised any, any serial killers yet.
<laughs> of course not. The other thing, can I say this? There are clearly a lot of people that use the motorized carts that are only using them because reasons. And there were guys, and this was kind of, I mean, if I could just hold the mirror up to your life for a quick second. If it's 10, 15 in the morning and you're already knocking back the brewskis and already seeming to be a little bit into the wind, then... You know, and but and, and you know maybe that that that's that's I get it. You're having a good time, but it's ten fifteen in the morning. It's not Vegas or Key West, dude. It's the Minnesota State Fair. That being said, I I'd see a lot of these people on these motorized carts, and there are plenty of people who clearly needed those motorized carts, and more power to you. But I'm talking about the ones who are getting up. It's like, dude, man, I'm just gonna leave this here. I'm gonna go get another beer and just get up. No problem. They didn't need the cart. They just were using it because, I guess, laziness. Because, you know, nothing. I think that's when I say, you know, what would make drunkenness more appealing? Being lazy. Yeah, I think that that's it. You got to do, I think, a little something with that, too. Because that was was pretty obscene. 952-946-6205. is the the number. Um, The, I I, want to go back to the topic we were talking about ad nauseum last week, and that is this new SRO bill, which basically says that you can't just a police officer, you know, cannot just go up there and start grabbing a kid and throttling them for no cause. And, and, and quite literally that is all this bill does. I have been, amazed at the narrative that, and by the way, shame on you, Star Tribune, and shame on WCCO-TV as well. Shame on you guys for basically just taking the Republican talking points. Because if you read the bill, no, this does not stop a police officer from doing anything where there's physical threat or bodily damage or possibility of death or a crime. That there is nothing here that that basically, regardless of what county attorneys say, the law is written to where if two kids are fighting each other, a cop can get in there and break it up any way possible. If there's a kid who's got a knife, cop can jump in there, take the take the perp down any way possible. Someone's selling drugs, cop can jump in there and, and arrest the individuals. There is nothing there, but yet... The, the far right keeps pushing this. They're going to be kids pummeling each other. The cops can't do anything. It's like, no, the bill actually says that they can. If there are two people fighting and a cop just tries to pull one kid off the other, he can be held for assault. No, he can't. The law says he can do that. There are going to be class A drug felonies going on in every school. And the cops are just going to have to sit there. and ex- No, they can stop all that. The only thing this law does, the only thing this law does is say a cop just can't go over there and start throttling a kid for no reason outside of he didn't like his tood. That's the only thing this does. And there was a moment this weekend where I heard from a friend of mine who's a teacher. And she wrote a fairly long note to me. And I'm going to share parts of this, but I'm also going to add one or two things to this because I think this is a very important element of the argument that needs to be put forward. Now, 
there are police officers across the, the state who are saying, well, we're not going in there unless I can basically hit a kid and there's no consequences. And that's really what this whole bill is about, is that the police seem to be upset because if they wrongly you know, abuse a child and hurt a child in school, they don't want any accountability for that. And think about that for a second. Say, is there any other industry we would tolerate that for? Think about that for a second. Say there was a restaurant that didn't kill anyone, but a whole bunch of people got sick because they weren't following the rules for safe food storage. And so they gave people a bunch of contaminated food and those people in turn got sick. Would we all say, well, I think we all can agree that even though 20 people had to go to the hospital and have their stomach pumped, there is no need. We've wagged our finger at that restaurant. There is no need to hold them further accountable. Of course not. We would demand a full investigation. There'd be inspections. There'd be lawsuits. That would be the case. That's what happens when you do something wrong. If an architect builds a building and the building collapsed because the architect didn't do their due diligence and make sure the building would stand. Do we look and say, well, it's only one building that collapsed and killed 20. No, of course we go in there and say, you know what? No, you got to hold that person accountable. So when you see a police officer and you see some of these videos nationwide that come on out where these SROs are in these schools and they're violently yanking kids by the hair and dragging them down the hallways. That, you, you know, should there be some accountability when they've done, why or did you do this? Well, I just didn't like their attitude. That's not a good reason to just allow a police officer to abuse a child. I actually had one guy this weekend make the argument that it's a crime the police would be held accountable if they're not able to basically choke out a six-year-old. Think about that. This is the conservative party today. This is the Christian right that basically, unless the police have the right to choke out a six-year-old, that somehow we are the namby-pamby Wokotopolis police. What are you talking about? First of all, dude, I, and I said this to the guy that said this, posted this on Twitter, you're sick. You need help. You need help. If you think the role of a police officer is to start cracking six-year-old skulls. But once again, all this bill does is say you can't just randomly go up to a kid and hit them, cuff them, choke them, grab them without cause. And the law actually etches out sides where it says, well, if there's a fight going on, if there is drugs being sold, if there's someone's life is in jeopardy, all bets are off. And once again, you got body cams, right? If, if this is the case, I mean, if, oh, I saw two people fighting, I grabbed them. Even Moriarty, I got to believe would be, well, there's not much I can do. He, there's a fight going on. He has the right because of the law to basically break up the fight. And that's when the whole thing is, is that it, no one seems to be bothered by any other county prosecutor. This seems to be, we can't allow Mary Moriarty to have this kind of power to decide who has and who has not committed a crime. Which is, this is ludicrous. Well, maybe you shouldn't be manhandling the kids. Because once again, that's all this bill says. You can't just manhandle kids in a school.
period. They're fighting. You can break that up. Someone's going to be killed. You can break that up. Drugs are being sold. You can break that up. All those are acceptable. This is just about basically stopping kids from being manhandled by cops. Tell you what, I'm going to take a break. Come on back. I want to get into this, this note from this teacher because she nailed it. She absolutely nailed it in regards to what I think is the problem here and what this law is really trying to do. And frankly, why the right is so against this law at all. 952-946-6205. Alan Miller in about 15 minutes. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So this teacher you know, made this point, and I think that this is this. Once again, all this law says is that a police officer cannot, without cause, go up and start harassing or grabbing or restraining a student in a school. I think that's a pretty good standard, frankly. Republicans, the Republicans have been able to lie and convince the Star Tribune and WCCO that basically that this doesn't allow them, that there's some gray area here. There isn't any gray area. They actually wrote the law pretty clean. As a matter of fact, the Duluth Police Department and the Rochester Police Department feel as if Keith Ellison's explanation was enough. They're not pulling their SRO students. This is only about basically... You know, I think it's Hennepin County, and it's basically this, you know, if we give Mary Moriarty the decision, the ability to, to, to decide if a cop who roughed up a kid wrongly gets to charge them, well, that somehow makes us weaker as a society. And shame on you guys, because I've read the bill, and I'm not, the, I'm not a politician, nor have I considered myself extremely smart, but I can see what this bill does. Go to the teacher here. From a teacher, I work in a predominantly white suburban school. We have police in our schools, but we don't have any police abuse issues. Now, far-right racists will insist that's because wealthy white kids are more well-behaved than poor and minority kids. That's a lie they use to justify their racism. Our school has fights, it has weapons, it has drug deals, and it has stalkers. But what we also have is wealthy people with their lawyers on speed dial. That is a deterrent. It stops police from just abusing a kid first and asking if it was justified after the fact. That's true. And that is in these wealthy schools, you, you, if you are a police officer, and by the way, a part of this makes a lot of sense. Have you ever driven out into the wealthy suburban districts? Have you seen when a police officer pulls a car over, what car is pulled over? Now I drive on the highways all the time. The worst drivers are for the most part, white bros, you know, who are driving their, you know, BMWs or speedy cars and zipping in and out of traffic at a hundred, 120 miles an hour. Those seem to be the worst drivers on the highway right now, and they're they're everywhere. I can't go for any drive without running into one or two of the bras with their cars. Those guys are not the ones getting pulled over. The guys that are getting pulled over are generally people with a 15-year-old car that's mostly rust, and I'm just going to be honest, from the people I've seen, mostly minorities. Now, I don't know why that's just that, that's it might just be a coincidence. But I've also heard from police officers that they know that if they pull over what looks like a wealthy white person in a car, that there's a decent chance that's going to be a court case and court time and stuff. And you have to ask the question, if that's known without the policing departments, well, are they basically allowing people to drive fast because they know it's more of a waste of their time than trying to stop them? I don't know. But I can tell you what I've seen, and my own eyes have seen most of the vehicles I see pulled over in wealthy white communities are not white people. 
in nicer cars who are the ones that seem to be driving the worst. It's usually hunk of junk cars with a minority in them. And that's just that. Now, the police get into these schools. You're in a wealthier white school. Guess what? You're, it, it, I have zero doubt. I have zero doubt the police officers there know that there are Fortune 500 executives in these schools, the parents of some of these kids in their school. And so if they just grab a kid, that could end up being their badge, a lawsuit. They don't want that. So they basically, there's a deterrent already there to make sure that if you actually are pulling a kid off another kid, that you're doing it with cause, that your camera's on, you got everything there and doing it. This teacher goes on to add, it's my belief the reason you see most of the police abuse of kids happening in poor and higher minority school districts is that the deterrent, the threat of a lawsuit just doesn't exist. The potential consequences of their actions do not force officers to stop and think about what they're about to do. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think the whole the, the whole point of this law is to give all kids that benefit of the doubt that the kids in the wealthy white suburban schools get. That basically that it, sh- it, it you shouldn't have poorer kids and minority kids be subjected to a different standard from a police officer in a school than the wealthy white kids. And this whole thing, this entire argument of we can't have this kind of law on the books screams at you that when you don't see these officers going out there and doing this stuff in the wealthy white suburban schools, that they just want the ability to do this predominantly in the high minority poorer school districts. And that's wrong. She went on to add, and I'll say this. Uh, this this last part she said what the allow the police abuse argument points out is there are too many people who think abuse is the best method of dealing with a poor or minority kid regardless of whether they have been legitimately or wrongly targeted by police not because it solves any actual issue but it sends a distinct message we can abuse you whenever we want 100 freaking percent this, this law is a bare minimum of accountability. And it is clearly, how dare you try to hold a police officer who wrongly throttled a kid, maybe sent a kid to the hospital. How dare you try to hold that officer accountable? And I've, I've, I've heard enough of these, these officers, well, we'll have standards. What's that standard? A finger wagging? I can tell you right now, if a cop goes in there and starts throttling my kid, my kid hasn't done anything, <laughs> you'd better dig deep into those pockets because you're going to be paying a lot of freaking money. And this basically just seems like we can never hold a cop responsible for their actions ever. And shame on everyone that's out there trying to paint this law as something it isn't. No, if there's a fight going on, a cop can do whatever they want to stop it. If there's a guy with a knife, the cop can do anything he wants to stop it. If there's a drug deal going on, the cop can do anything they want to stop it. This has nothing to do with that. But that's what this law is its being painted as by conservatives of stopping. And that is not what this law stops. It stops the cop from saying, you giving me lip boy and smacking a kid. 
And then the police come out and say, well, we, we reviewed the body footage. We're not going to release it now because we want, you know, t- tempers are high right now in the community. We don't want to fan the flames. So we're not going to release the body cam footage. But just know that we have got our stern wagon finger out there and we've got remedial training for the officer that we're going to put back in that school. That kid has to go past again. This is not some grand overreach. This is a pathetic attempt by the Republican Party to create an issue out of a non-issue. And shame on every one of you Democrats that's cowering to this. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised you guys aren't out there more saying, no, the police can do that. No, the police can do that. No, the police can do that. This is a non-issue issue. Basic accountability. Because if you're not going to do this, then why do we have accountability rules for anyone? We should allow restaurants to poison their customers. We should allow architects to build bad buildings. We should allow it because if you're not going to have any accountability for the police, then why the freaking heck do we have it for anyone else? Because they, we should not have a class-tiered system where there is zero accountability for wrong actions by any individual person just because. And the fact that the Duluth Police Department and the Rochester Police Department are going to have SROs in their schools tells you this is far more about the Republican Party of Minnesota going out and pulling in some favors from police departments to try to make this law look like something it is not. And shame on anyone that goes on out there and and basically lies to basically try to give the Republicans a talking point. It's kind of pathetic. 952-946-6205-952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. Change of gears. Alan Miller going to join us. We're going to talk about his latest book when he does return. It is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Uh, longtime listeners of this show know my next guest. He has filled in for me many a time. He is one of the more uh, uh, distinguished broadcasters in the Twin Cities metro area. His access to democracy is still going. As a matter of fact, his latest uh, edition had Dave St. Peter from the Twins. Wow, that's a nice get. Uh, they don't return my calls. Uh, it, and Alan Miller has uh, branched out into writing. He has got his second book coming on out. Uh, that book is called A Reluctant Madonna. That follows up his first book, Holding Court. He's kind enough to join, join us to talk about his books. Hey, Alan, how are you, my friend? Hey, friend, how are you? I'm doing okay, man. How are, how are things been going? I haven't chatted with you in a while. Well, it, it's been uh, an interesting period of time. Mm-hmm. Some physical problems, but uh, the, the books uh, seem to write themselves. So, Well... That is a neat trick. Now, uh, if, if you've listened to the show, I'm a big fan of Larry Millette, who was a longtime architectural writer over at the Pioneer Press, and he wrote his own Sherlock Holmes books and stuff like this. And I've gotten to talking to him about the transfer over to writing fiction. Uh, talk a little bit about this. What, what, when, you, when you came to writing uh, Holding Court and uh, your latest book, what, what was, where was this? Was this something you've always wanted to do, was to write some fiction? Well, that's true. I have written nonfiction. I have a couple of nonfiction books out, and uh, I have been writing all my life. But uh, <clears throat> on my bucket list, I had I want to have a novel. Well, Holding Court was that novel, is that novel. It came out a year ago, and uh, now I've just released A Reluctant Madonna, 
which is the second in a trilogy about these same characters. And uh, as I say, it just about wrote itself. Uh, I picked uh, a sort of prescient uh, foreign land grabs uh, in the Dakotas as the start off of this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the Congress and uh, many states are waking up to the fact that we have to protect uh, our farmers and land. And I even had to put a, a an afterword in the book that uh, actually the legislatures caught up with us. But a, a reluctant Madonna uh, is unusual because it is a follow-up to the uh, first uh, Holding Court book, the same characters. But uh, un unlike most mysteries, where you have one you know, one direction to go, one mystery to solve. I basically try to weave in four separate stories and have them all conclude uh, at the end. And it seemed to work out. Now, the, uh, and, and the four stories, are, 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 they, are, they, are they four stories intertwined in a reluctant Madonna, or is it through the whole trilogy? Uh, no, through, through this particular book. Okay. Uh, the next one is going to move on to something else. Again, uh, an, a current issue. I have some Supreme Court in this book, as I do in, in the other book, uh, involving a, a mythical situation that I created about uh, a death, really. Uh, I won't say death, but uh, assisted suicide, let's put it that way. And uh, that hasn't reached the Supreme Court yet, but I, I have created it. And uh, we have an unauthorized painting, semi-nude painting of one of my characters, which uh, leads to uh, mystery about the writer, uh, the painter, I should say. Uh, uh, we have a Ponzi scheme. We have... Uh, some portions in Chinese, some portions in Lakota, some portions uh, in Yiddish. Uh, I went to uh, North Dakota to do the groundwork for this book, mm -hmm. and that's where it starts, and that's where it's initially set. Um, tell me that the character of the semi-new portrait is based on me. <laughs> You no, know, no, it's funny, a funny thing because uh, when our characters discuss <clears throat> uh, the paintings and, and this portrait artist who paints them, uh, we find out he pays large sums of money for the people who pose. And one of my characters, uh, the male lead, uh, Mort, says, Boy, for that kind of money, I'd pose for him. And his wife, Danny, says, yeah, when he starts doing Buddhas, that's when you can oppose. So uh, maybe you fit in that. I don't know. Oh no, I'm I'm a big tall glass of water, my friend. So I... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, okay. So let's. I, I I love talking to writers about their process. Now, obviously, you are writing things. I talked to David Pepper about his books, and in same thing, you're talking about stuff that's modern and basically ripped from the headline sort of things. Sure, some embellishments here or there, but it's kind of that sort of mentality. 
But generally, I've I've always found when I've talked to authors, the characters themselves, that is not something that has come up recently. That these are characters that really over many years, in some case decades, these have been characters that have been kind of roaming around the author's mind and, he fi and they finally put them down on paper. Is that the same for you? Is that the characters that you are writing about are, are, are long characters that you've thought about uh, extensively? It's the only way I can write, frankly. Mm. Uh, there's probably some auto autobiographical material in there as well. And, and things that I've been carrying for years, just as you said, and they all come out in the book. I mean, I can read you uh, what the back cover of the book says. Go right. A dizzying death, a frightening climax, a foreign land grab in the Dakotas, a strangulation, an interrupted Central American cruise, a lecherous artist, a psychotic stalker, a living room shooting, drama in the Supreme Court, a Ponzi scheme, illicit lovers, an unauthorized portrait, a feigned suicide, or is it murder, multiple suspects, a Delaware beach resort, an Israeli martial arts discipline, a Springer Spaniel, and an ov ovulation cycle, all combined to lead our young heroes on a dizzying path, capped off in a frightening climax led by an eagle-eyed housekeeper with a large garbage bag. The, and it's all in there. <laughs> well, you talked about going up to, to the Dakotas to, to start doing this kind of research on this. It, you know, it, it's obviously when you have such an eclectic base of the story here, I mean, how much time did you spend kind of in, you know, each, each one of these kind of uh, concepts and understanding them so you could write about them authoritatively? Well, I did a lot of research before I went to the Dakotas. And, uh, you know, having practiced law, research has always been my forte. And uh, so a lot of it was done. Uh, what I did then was do some of the initial writing, went there for verification. And we're probably going to have a uh, one of the book launches in the Dakotas, uh, in, in a month or two. At the moment, I'm fighting uh, blood clots in my legs, so I'm kind of restricted to quarters. Well, be careful there, sir. Well, I'm on blood thinners. And, I mean, who wants fat blood, though? So, uh, you know. <laughs> the, well, and first of all, all my best. I hope I hope that all clears up for you. The, the the whole concept of one of the writing these stories and, and I've talked with this like you know I mentioned Larry Millette once again the you know he writes the Sherlock Holmes novels and you, you got to be pretty tight on this you came in with such a a wide variety of topics and things that influence talk about your storyboard on this I mean it must have been three rooms of note cards on walls trying to hold this all together well not, not really that's not the way I work but I, I do work from bullet points and it wasn't that many. It was several themes that I figured out how to incorporate into one novel with really uh, bringing it all together at the end. I will say that a, uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and uh, a, a well-respected novelist who looked at my first draft and said, you can't do this. You have to have a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. oh, 
I don't want to have a beginning and an end. I want to have several different stories and make them come together. And that's what I tried to do. Now, the initial reports are that uh, I have accomplished that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and with that, I mean, okay, so you've got the same characters in both of these books. Let's, right. let's talk a little bit about that, because, I mean, one of the things I've always found fascinating is when a character is revisited, that the author generally, you know, the, the character evolves. It starts going down paths that when the first book was written, they didn't necessarily think it was going to, but for story's sake and for character development's sake, you, you generally get an evolution of the character. Did you get a little bit of that as you're going in through? And obviously, I imagine you're working on your third book, too. Is that, is that, talk a little bit about that. Were you surprised about where your characters were going? Absolutely. Uh, there's an evolution here. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a problem going into the third book because I have left one of my characters pregnant. Uh, as we uh, conclude the second book, this reluctant Madonna, and uh, I have to figure out how can I deal with that uh, in book three. I can't have, uh, you know, uh, my projection is to have a book out around Labor Day each year. So I've I've done that twice. But if I do that a year from now, uh, what am I going to do with the Mm six-month-old? So, uh, you know, uh, that's one of the things that I'm uh, working on now. Uh, Also a a topic, a very topical topic for the next uh, book. Mm Mm-hmm. I try to have something that's topical and really argumentative. You you talked about how you know, like I said, ripped from the headline stuff. You know, the you know a, a potential Supreme Court case, which we're going to see here probably then for too long. The Dakota land grab, which is something that you know, there's a lot of states. Minnesota's got laws that basically say you can't do that here, but other states don't have those laws in there. You got onto that one. Is there is there a rip from the headlines thing that you're thinking about for the third book. Can you share, or is that something which, you know, you kind of, you, you try to, you are very well knowledge. I mean, your, your intelligence when it comes to, to news is, is not matched by many. I mean, you're incredibly intelligent when it comes to the, the news of what's going on. Are you just kind of waiting to see where something's going or do you have an idea what that, no, what no, that I, is? I, I know where this one is going. Okay. I don't know where all of it is going, but I know, where it's going, and, uh, you know, I read uh, not only news magazines, I read three newspapers a day, uh, hard hardcover in my hand, and uh, the Washington Post online. Uh, so I try to stay conversant with the different focuses uh, of current events. I will go from Al Jazeera to... Uh, you know, uh, one of the Israeli papers. Uh, and I, I try to get both perspectives in. Well, and you, you could always, I don't know, listen to this show. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know how much I'm going to help with any plot development, but, you know, it's goofy, and I, I touch on some things here. Uh, <laughs> so, it's, you know. Interesting. I, I got you today with no trouble, but uh, Egan from the uh, viewing, you know, from from where we broadcast from, or where I broadcasted from many times, uh, doesn't always lend itself 
to good reception. But today uh, I had no problem. Well, that's because of the that, that Vikings facility. There's a dark underside to that. No, I'm just joking. I'm joking. Minnesota Vikings, I'm just joking. All right. Uh, are you got you? You talked about obviously your health is the bigger concern. We want to get you healthy. Is there some potential book signings going to happen around town here if uh, your your health cleans up here? That, that, well, I'll be uh, I'll be at the Rosemont uh, Book Fair in September. I think it's around the fifteenth. Uh, I'll be at the big one in Minneapolis in October. Okay, uh, mid October. Uh, we're trying to set up some book signings now. I just had one on the uh, holding court in a diner that was very successful at a Barnes and Noble, and uh, they invited me back when this one comes out. Uh, this one is out, so we have to arrange that, and uh, we'll see how many we can arrange. I, I am going back to the Dakotas uh, to kick off a Reluctant Madonna, and we will probably have... Uh, and you'll be copied on it, a, ma- a major signing as we mm. kick this one off, uh, a book launch, which I didn't really do with the first one. Uh, a Reluctant Madonna, and that's the follow-up to Holding Court. Alan Miller, find that book. Uh, it's Amazon, of course. I'm going to presume that if you were doing the signing over at Barnes & Noble, they got it over there at some of the stores at least. At least they can order it for you, and you can get it both for online reading with the Kindle or paperback. Those are available for you there. Alan, as always, uh, first of all, make sure uh, you take care of yourself. All my best. I hope this uh, this health issue clear, clears up. But by all means, uh, you know, congratulations on this. Let us know about the book signings. We'll let everyone know about those. And when the third one comes on out about that stunningly gorgeous broadcast radio broadcaster that you're going to be putting into the action sequences when no I'm, I'm not i'm joking you're not doing that but when your third book comes on out make sure you let me know we'll have you back and we'll talk about wrapping up the trilogy okay it's not unattractive if you if you saw the cover of this one i don't know if you've seen the cover yes, I of have. this one and uh, i think that they did a great job with the cover i uh, must say it wasn't me that did it but uh, i think that is an enticement in and of itself. A reluctant Madonna, Alan Miller. Alan, as always, thank you very much. I appreciate the time and all my best. Matt, so much thanks. And uh, to everybody, a big hello at the station. You bet. Take care. Alan Miller, kind enough to join us to talk about his book once again, A Reluctant Madonna, and then his other book, Holding Court. Uh, Amazon, go find them in Barnes & Noble. Go find your local bookstore, order them. You can find those. Uh, and it's Alan Miller, A-L-A-N-M-I-L-L-E-R. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Uh, thanks to Alan Miller. Find his books. Find those books out there. Uh, changing direction once again. Someone pointed this out, and I actually, I, I never really thought about this before, but the more I think about it, I think they're exactly right. Now, there was a tactic by Republicans for many years that when a Democratic president was in office, that they would not confirm judges. Then when a Republican would take over and they had the Senate, they would quickly, con- you know, they would approve tons of judges. There's a reason why, even though this country actually favors the left, 
there are, in some places, overwhelming amounts of conservative judges. And that was why. And I think Barack Obama and Joe Biden have basically cut through this crud and said, you know, you, you, you're not going to be, we're not going to let you hold these things back anymore. And so they've, they basically have done this. And, you know, they, they, you know, the argument was we'll get rid of the filibuster. If you guys step in, you're going to, you're going to allow us to verify judges. And they have, and to, to their, to a, to a point to their credit, they have, although they pretty much consistently make, you know, Kamala Harris to go over there and be the tie breaking vote, but still they're all getting passed. Of course, the 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 ultimate you know the, you know argument for this that, that they did this was with Merrick Garland, that they basically made up a rule that said you could not confirm a Supreme Court justice during a election cycle, and they pre- they prevented um, Barack Obama from putting Merrick Garland's on the court. Funny story uh, towards the end, well, not funny, very tragic, and going why I go back and rip on anyone that didn't vote in 2016. Because there's no difference between Trump. Oh God! Uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died right before the election, the Republicans could not. They their whole argument is, well, if the party of the Senate is the same as that, well, that's that rule doesn't apply. Now they basically they've bragged about it. They bragged about how they've created a two tier system here, where they will rush through any nominee, while at the same time stopping anyone on the other side from putting someone in. Tommy Tuberville, this is the stupidest man who has ever been in Congress. He is brick-freaking-dumb. The Alabama senator has been preventing, blocking hundreds of military appointments to keep them, uh, you know, and, and, and he's basically doing it. Now, his argument is he's doing this because he wants the military to not have the same laws Nash, uh, you know, the laws about women's rights as far as abortion and health care go in the military. But when someone pointed out this is a kind of a pattern we've seen from the Republicans in the past, the more I think about it, I think that there's validity here. I think Tommy Tuberville is not appointing these the leadership of the military because they want to leave the military leadership as much open as possible. So that if Trump was to win another term, they could install a pro-coup military leadership. And I'm sorry, that sounds like a very legit thing that could be going on. That basically they're trying to make it seem like, you know, would you be okay with us throwing out the Constitution? And, and, and yeah, I think that that's exactly what you're looking at here. That Tommy Tuberville is is basically setting this up to where you can get a pro overthrow of the government military in place so that if Trump needs to do try another January 6th, he's ready to go. Yeah. Hour two, that's up next. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. Matt Patrick, Brett's now in studio. Happy birthday to Bob Newhart. Still one of the funniest human beings. You want a good one from him? This is this is Bob Newhart. I don't like country music, but I don't mean to denigrate those who do. And for those people who like country music, denigrate means to put down. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, well done. Well done. Well done. Yes. 
So I, I was going to expect to see you at the fair on Friday. You end up, you know, skipping on Friday. You went on Monday. Yeah, I ended up going yesterday. Got caught up and busy with some things on Friday, unrelated to the station. So yeah, we made it yesterday during one of the hottest days of the year, but still had a good time out there. How? Why? Did you ever go in the Coliseum and watching the the shows in there? The, the horse shows and stuff like that? You know, it's funny. The only time I've actually really been into the Coliseum has been for uh, back when they used to do high school hockey section tournaments out there. That's right. Wow, that was a while back. Yeah. Uh, the I will say it is about it was about 20 degrees cooler in the Coliseum than it was outside. I wish I would have got in there. Oh, then. it was. It was <laughs> nice. I don't know why that is. Yeah. But it's just a big concrete building. You'd think it'd be warm. No, it's nice and cool in there. I, I, I sat in there and I watched a, a women... A woman in a very nice dress with a mini horse pulling around in a cart. And I'm like, is this really? Okay, fine. I'll, I'll go with it. I'm all right. It's, it is what it is. Um, if you're over there by the Coliseum, you're over the University of Minnesota milk barn where you get the milkshakes right there, right next to the cows, right next to where the, mm-hmm. the, the, the milking area is. You can, people have said to me, it's like, Matt, where did you find this, the chocolate raspberry malt that I got out there? And if you haven't seen the picture... Go look at the social medias. It looks delicious. It was delicious. If you go there, they have they have chocolate, strawberry, vanilla, and then they always have another flavor. Some years, wrong, like orange cream. What are you doing? Some years, pretty good. They had mint one year, and you can ask them to mix. So you mix the chocolate and the mint, and you had a grasshopper malt. It was delicious. Last year, they had caramel. And I had a chocolate caramel malt. It's okay. This year, pure gold. Raspberry was their fourth flavor. Raspberry chocolate malt. That's how you get it done. And you, can, and you just ask them. So can you mix the two of them together? Yeah, sure. Oh, the caramel and the chocolate sounds good to me. Oh, Missed that last year. They're, they're, it, 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 was, it was delightful. It was delightful. Uh, so um, I want to, um, if I can here... The uh, there is a boy's name. This is, this is a post I saw this, and I said, "Okay, I, I know what we're going to talk about here." This is b- baby boy names that are cool for 2024. Wait, by cool, does that mean a lot of people are naming their boys this, or well, is this it's, like subjective? It's a, this is subjective that okay. they're going to suggest here, and I want to take a moment to talk about how. Cool is a perspective that yes. you got you to be careful of here. I'm going to read <laughs> That's this. That's what I was thinking myself when you brought this. Yeah, yeah. There is one here that when I think of cool, all right. But I'm going to, here are the names they're saying if you want avant garde names. Now, hey, names change. I get that. Let's dive into this, shall we? And, and see what eventually your, your, your child's uh, going to be paying a, a counselor. All right. Watson. Okay. Uh, ever. E V E R ever, never ever. No, well, you could not. Don't that. don't you dare! <laughs> don't you dare say it. God, I can already see it. That kid uh, is going to have a lot of trouble in school. No, yes, never ever. Well, I mean, if you're going to school with kids' names like this, Hartley H A R T L E Y, Wylan W Y L A N. Here's a great one. Riot. It's like Wyatt only with an R. R Y A T T. Sumner, like the fort that where you know slavery was was defended, sure. Uh, Zeal, Z E A L. Copeland, like Stuart Copeland from the police. That's a last name, I thought. Yeah. Well, well I mean Watson. All right. Is <laughs> going to be like an assistant to a detective in his future? <laughs> Briggs, <laughs> Briggs, Oaken, as in you know, like something stupid enough. Palin would na- name a kid. 
Hmm. Oaken, O-A-K-E-N. Yeah, some of these are kind of the Sarah Palin kids yeah. category. Yeah, here are, oh, there's one that's coming up here. You know, <laughs> buckle up. Brixton, B-R-I-X-T-O-N. Ivo. You're naming it after like a robot program. Ivo. I'm Ivo. God, that kid's going to get teased. <laughs> Maddox, as in the pitcher. Asen, A-C-E-N. I'm going to, uh, is it Asen? It's got to be See, Asen. Maddox and Asen, I think I've, Remember um, at least being at some sporting events and having kids with those names. Specifically, I know Maddox I've heard as a first name. I think I might have heard the other one, too. Malachi, straight from the Amish farm there. We got a yeah. Malachi starting to come back in. <laughs> Bellamy, Romeo. That's that's going oh, old, that, old school, old school. There. you got to be a ladies' man. <laughs> Just, you know, thanks, Mom and Dad, for that one. Thank you. Braylon, B-R-E-Y-L-A-N. Novel, as in book, N-O-V-E-L. And I say, I mean, and nothing caps off this list. Baby boy names that are cool for 2024. Banjo. What? <laughs> Banjo. That's an object. It's, well. <laughs> it's an instrument. That's not a I mean, I mean, name, yeah. If you're kind of trying to peg how many teeth your kids have, and sure, why not? You know, hey, he likes moonshine. I got an idea for him. Banjo. Banjo. Would you... Banjo would, McNeil has kind of a nice ring to it, though. Banjo McNeil. <laughs> yeah, if I was a blues artist from the 1950s, <laughs> Banjo McNeil. Uh, there was a kid... Okay, and, and there was a kid... I, my kid played soccer with him. And I said, hey, what's your child's name? Pickles. Oh, Pickles. That's funny. What's his real name? No, that's his real name. Oh, it's Pickles. No. <laughs> Pickles. You know, as, oh. I, as I told my wife as we're driving back home, I said, yeah, I wonder why Pickles is going to have to see a, a counselor for a while. Uh, there. So I need both of you guys' help here on something. Patrick, you ready to go here? It's fantasy football time for me tonight. i got to pick my fantasy football team. I am picking number two, which would mean Justin Jefferson is going to be off the table. Who should I take with my number one pick at number two? Uh, Jamar Chase is probably going to be toward the top of your list. The, the, the Bengals wide receiver? Yes. All right. Well, it's funny. In my fantasy league, we did this all online, and somehow I didn't get to make my first pick. I actually had the second overall pick as well, and it made me take Stefan Diggs. So wasn't You took Stefan Diggs. He's like nine or ten, really, isn't well, he? Well, I didn't choose him. I don't know how I ended up drafting him as my second pick, but... That's who I ended up with. Am I crazy or did fantasy football change? Because fantasy football used to be draft your running backs. Running back, running back, running oh, back. Now and it's now all it's, right. it's all wide receivers. T- t- uh, Kelsey, the, the tight end is a first-round pick, they're mm-hmm. saying. I, I mean, it's changed, man. Yeah, up until last year, I had not played in probably about 10 or 15 years. And when I was seeing the list of uh, recommended picks, yeah, it's all receivers, all tight ends. It's it's a little different right. from uh, when I used to play. How how early, How early? what round should I go with my, my running backs, Patrick? I think that'll probably depend. If you get into the second round and let's say a guy like Derrick Henry is still there, because he's likely going to be... It's going to be a very top-heavy group for running backs, if you guys were just talking about. Yeah, Derrick Henry. No, I'm writing this down. You don't think I'm going to get this guy if he's there. <laughs> I mean, Patrick says so. I'm, I'm, Patrick, Patrick and Brett are much smarter at sports <laughs> than I am. Um, so, okay, is there a rookie? Is there one rookie out there? Like, I mean, if I'm getting a sleeper pick, that's some guy that's probably not going to get picked in the first five or six rounds. It's going to be still out there. Is there a rookie out there that you say, you know what, that's a, pretty much a, you're, you're going to get a hit there? That's oh, a little go bit ahead, of, Patrick. Yeah. Uh, that's a little bit of a tough 
it's as you were saying, it's kind of a, a sleeper. It's kind of hard to hard to. Don't tease me, Patrick. <laughs> Is there anyone that comes? Oh, to I, I made my own pick in my draft. The Vikings rookie receiver. I, I just think the Vikings are going to do nothing but pass this year. But so why not? When you're with a bunch of freaking Vikings fans in, in doing a draft, the kicker's going to be taken in the third round because everyone wants a freaking Viking on their team. I can't. I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna get my second round pick on the the rookie wideout. Although no. maybe not the second round, but uh, yeah. Oh, hey. I think he's gonna have a big year with uh, Kirk Cousins. I'm no idiot. My name's not Banjo for God's sakes. Not Banjo McNeil over there. <laughs> what kind of name is Riot Banjo? Come on, I'm smarter than that. Uh, speaking of smart people, all right, guys. I'm taking. By the way, Derek. Uh, Derek Henry, I'm taking your advice on that one. If I can get him, I'm getting him. And if I fail or lose, I'm blaming you both. So, right. <laughs> it's, uh, Cooligan joins us again. I, I know one of the lesser stories you guys talk about is that story about the, the plastics in the water up on the Indian Reservation. You know what the craziest thing about that, as I was chatting with Patrick, is that there are like no manufacturing plants within yeah. miles of this place, and they have no idea where this is coming from. So that's got to be terrifying thinking if that can happen there where else could we have areas with this contaminated water that's that is ugly what else you guys touch on yeah we're talking a little bit about the resignation of ruth richardson from the from the dfl uh, house control uh, she is going well she is currently the ceo of planned parenthood for the northern states so she's going to be focusing on that primarily so we'll talk about her and some of the controversy she's had a little bit with labor unions too over the summer and then we'll we'll touch on school test scores as well and how the west metro schools a lot of wealthy, uh, a wealthy tax base are doing way better than the rest of the state. Well, kind of the way things yeah. are, that happen with that. Uh, the, the, Ruth Richards' seat, I think that was like a 65-35 DFL win, so I, I can't see that being up for Yeah, that was one of those seats that used to be Republican, but has swung major blue over the years. Yeah, right. uh, Patrick Gooligan talking with Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And we are joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, as we are going to be uh, taking a look at some of the latest stories that they have been working on as we now head into the fall season here in September. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com, by the way, for the latest in Minnesota news and politics, as they do a great job over there covering uh, all the Minnesota news. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. So let's start off in the political realm where the DFL's House majority is going to be reduced from the current 70 to 64 to 69-64. And that's because Representative Ruth Richardson from the Mendota Heights area is going to resign her seat. She, besides serving in the legislature, is also the CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States, which pretty much covers Minnesota and a few other uh, northern Midwest states, which was a job she took on last year. She originally thought that she would be able to handle both jobs, serving as the CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States and serving in the legislature, but cited the demands of working in an evolving healthcare landscape as one of the reasons uh, why she decided to resign that seat. So, Patrick, I'm hoping you guys can provide a little more insight about how this call kind of came to be, because there is a lot to unpack here, as I know you guys have been reporting on some controversy she's had in the past with some uh, labor unions, which we can get into in just a few minutes. But what were some of the main reasons why she decided that now was the time to step down from the state legislature? Well, I think it's just uh, it's too demanding uh, to have both these jobs at the same time. Uh, when she was named uh, the CEO, um, it certainly raised some eyebrows. 
uh, around Minnesota politics, um, not just because there would appear to be a bit of a conflict of interest there when you've got uh, someone running an organization um, that is uh, so uh, tied to uh, state law and public policy, um, because there's a lot of legislators who have those kinds of conflicts, but uh, the, the real issue was that Planned Parenthood is, a, is in this uh, in- incredibly important time for the organization uh, as they deal with the, the effects of the Dobbs decision, and um, there, there was just a feeling that that was going to be um, a very much a full-time job, and it was going to be difficult to, uh, to wear both hats. Um, and then um, Richardson had a, a very productive legislative session. Uh, she shepherded the uh, paid family leave bill, um, which is certainly one of the most uh, one of the biggest uh, achievements of this uh, DFL legislature. Uh, although it won't go into effect until early 2026, um, but she also uh, found uh, some controversy during the session um, with her. In her other job, she uh, there are some uh, staff at Planned Parenthood who um, are trying to unionize, and uh, she was accused of uh, some anti-union behavior as the CEO. She is in management there, and she actually lost the endorsement of the SEIU over that uh, conflict. So um, I think my sense is this this was inevitable. It was just a question of uh, when it was going to happen. And I think by doing this now, uh, she gives um, the caucus uh, some time uh, to get a replacement there uh, with plenty of time for the next session. Well, as you mentioned, back in July, Max Nesterak was reporting on the controversy she had with this SEIE SEIU union, rather, as they were attempting to unionize some of their workers with the Planned Parenthood North Central States region. And as you mentioned, Ruth Richardson was accused of engaging in some anti-union tactics at the time. But uh, you brought up an interesting point with this, too, how this possibly could have been inevitable. Was this dispute with the SEIU uh, probably another factor that could have led to her idea of resigning, knowing that perhaps she wouldn't have quite a strong support from labor unions? Uh, I'm curious about that aspect as well. I think she was a, uh, uh, she's in a relatively safe seat for Democrats. I I think that her um, her achievements in the legislature would have meant re-election if she wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's any question that these uh, this conflict between Planned Parenthood and the SEIU is, is not great for the, the DFL coalition. It was uh, not great uh, press during the session, um, and again, we were the ones who wrote those stories, uh, but I, I don't think you ever want, I don't think the caucus loved uh, that Ruth wound up, wound up on the opposite side of the SEIU, which is an important, um, an important supporter of DFL. Uh, so I think that conflict certainly, I mean, if, if that conflict had not arisen, would she, would she remain? I, I still don't think so, but I, I, I think it was, Certainly not helpful. 
So what exactly is this going to mean politically? Obviously, uh, the DFL's majority is, rele- is reduced from six seats to five seats, but I'm curious about the timing of the special election as well, because I imagine uh, Governor Tim Walls and other DFLers probably want to get some sort of special election in before we get into the, to the next session coming up next year. Yeah, there will be a special election the governor will call. Um, I think it would make sense uh, to, ta- to have it coincide with uh, municipal elections that are uh, coming up in November, um, but we don't know yet. Uh, he has not he has not called that special election, um, and uh, so I expect that in the next day or two. Um, but uh, it's generally a, a I think it's probably going to be a, uh, a relatively safe DFL seat. But I do recall the DFL losing a special election um, in the uh, in early part of 2016, I think, in Bloomington, which was uh, thought to be a, a relatively safe uh, DFL seat. Um, and and so I think this gives Republicans an opportunity to to get some momentum um, going into uh, the the election year. It's uh, it's not unwinnable um, because you're going to have a, a low turnout. Um, and so if you organize well, uh, you can win that thing. And, and it would really help, I think, their, their momentum, uh, their fundraising, and, and their spirits going into the next election year. It's also a chance for them to uh, air their ideas, uh, to test different messages that might work uh, next year. Um, and if you win, if Republicans win that race, they come out of it with a strong message that the DFL legislature uh, of 2023 uh, overplayed their hand and, um, and went too far and suburban voters have repudiated them. And I, I think that would create um, a good storyline for them going into next year. And, uh, you guys are going to be writing an article about this coming up tomorrow. In fact, I believe Max had a chance to actually speak to uh, Ruth Richardson, who will be soon to be a former representative and the current CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central State. So, yeah, look forward to checking that out tomorrow at minnesotareformer.com. Any preview of what we can kind of expect in that article, or should people just uh, make sure they uh, take a take a read on that coming up tomorrow? Well, uh, Representative Richardson uh, released this news Friday at 6 o'clock uh, on a holiday weekend, which is always a sign that somebody doesn't want doesn't really want coverage of uh, of a news event. We call it a Friday news dump, and uh, but we're not going to um, let Representative Richardson get away with that. So um, we want to give a full airing to her decision, give her a chance to talk about why she made this decision, um, but also talk about some of those dynamics that we talked about previously. Uh, uh, the the, uh, the conflict between Planned Parenthood and labor. Well, you can check that out over minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. As, yeah, you certainly hit the nail on the head there. Not only a Friday news dump at 6 p.m., but the Friday of Labor Day. I yeah, couldn't pick about a better time except for maybe releasing something on uh, Christmas or, or Thanksgiving during that holiday week. I uh, want to move on to a few other articles uh, before we wrap things up and want to talk about what's happening on the Leech Lake Reservation and one of their schools, Bagonay Geshing School, 
which uh, will have kids not drinking from the water fountains or having food prepared with well water at their school, at least for a while. And that's because the EPA back in December found a number of PFAS chemicals that were present in the water and that they recommended that the water system be shut down immediately. So this is interesting to me, Patrick, because as I was reading through your report on this, uh, this school is not really located near any manufacturing plants within several miles of this area. So it's kind of been a mystery as to, well, how they had this these high levels of PFAS chemicals in their drinking water without really any major manufacturing plants around, which kind of shows how scary these PFAS chemicals can be. Yeah, it's a perfect illustration of, of the danger of the chemicals. Um, and how they've really spread across the world. These are uh, man-made chemicals um, invented and manufactured by uh, 3M, uh, Minnesota's own uh, iconic company. Uh, they are uh, com- they comprise uh, very strong chemical bonds, which make them very useful in a lot of products um, because they resist heat and um, and, and cold and uh, uh, grease and water and uh, just about everything else. And so that makes them a uh, really uh, useful component in all kinds of products. But it also means that they don't break down and they accumulate in the environment and they accumulate in uh, water and ground and the human body. Um, and, uh, and they've been, we've found them in, just all over the planet. And in this case, it seems like maybe it's from a landfill and because there's so many consumer products that get thrown away that have uh, these chemicals that could be how uh, they wound up there. Um, but the the immediate problem is, is getting clean water to these students and the staff there um, and uh, but I, I think it's, it's an excellent illustration of the long-term problem that we all face now because of the, uh, these toxic chemicals that we allowed uh, and continue to allow the manufacture of, um, most notably by Minnesota's own 3M. Well, it certainly seems like, yeah, there needs to be a little more awareness around this because as the school even cited, they had the Bureau of Indian Education test the water back in November. And while they did find some of those uh, high yeah. levels, they, the school said there really wasn't a lack of, there was a lack of urgency on trying to get this cleaned up. It really wasn't until the EPA stepped in and saying, oh, you need to shut down this water treatment. So I'm curious now what happens next in this situation because obviously you're going to have to get a new water treatment and this is generally from one of the schools that does not get a ton of funding. So I'm curious what does happen next with this. Could there be any action from the state legislature or who pays for this new water system that they're eventually going to need? Uh, walk us through what could be happening up next. Yeah, the the jurisdiction is a little uh, confused here because you've got the Bureau of Indian Education, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the EPA, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, and then the Minnesota Health Department um, all have, uh, you know, can can have uh, some links to this um, and some responsibility. Um, the school is controlled by the tribe, um, but it's owned by the BIE. So, um, you know, who's going to figure this out is a, is a good question. Ultimately, I would hope that the 
company that created the pollution uh, would would it would pay for uh, cleaning it up. Um, but there's not a great history of that either. No. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not. Well, you can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. Uh, one more thing to briefly talk about, and that has to do with school test scores, because that's something that people are paying attention to as we come out of the pandemic and evaluate how students did when having to learn remotely or at least doing hybrid remote learning. And student t- state test scores still have not rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. That's according to the latest data from the state of Minnesota. And there definitely is a geographic split with students generally in wealthier areas, especially the West Metro with better funded schools, tending to do better on these state assessments. Meanwhile, those in poorer areas, whether we're talking about the urban core of the Twin Cities or some of the more impoverished rural communities, tended to fare poorer. Uh, Anything jump out at you as you had a chance to take a look at some of these school test results? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly... um what you would expect, um, the, the socioeconomic uh, areas well off, that are well off, uh, that they have the most resources, um, maybe the most involved parents, and uh, and they scored best. But you also see some areas uh, where uh, rural areas, for instance, some rural areas, kind of isolated here and there, where you had really uh, excellent scores. And uh, Chris Ingram, who uh, who dove into this data, made the point that you know we ought to try to figure out what they're doing in these places and see if it can be replicated. Um, I, I think overall, uh, you saw a, a suite of uh, action of, of programs that the legislature passed and Governor Tim Wall pa- uh, signed this past spring that are an attempt to. Uh, to address the uh, these scores that have not recovered from the pandemic, and I mean, I do wonder what is the, the patience of uh, Minnesotans as um, as we continue to see these really wide disparities across the state uh, across the state, and at what point uh, do uh, DFL elected officials start to um, are they held accountable for those gaps and uh, for the score still not recovering uh, two years after the pandemic? Yeah, most certainly. And at least Minnesota scores did generally perform better than others from around the country. But there is still, yeah, lots of work to do as uh, we are still uh, not rebounding from those pre-pandemic level test scores. Uh, you can read more about what Chris wrote over at minnesotareformer.com. As we have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, joining us every Tuesday chatting about some of the latest news and articles that they've been working on. Again, go to minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM950. AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show on your Tuesday. Good to be with you today, 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Just a little bit of a heads up. We're expecting some storms to come through possibly tonight as this heat finally moves on. We've got a cool front coming in. It's only supposed to be like 68 degrees tomorrow, which is fantastic. 
Uh, but don't be surprised if some storms in the area. Just keep that in mind as you're heading on out. You could see some storm action. You, uh, uh, Patrick, you were during during the Kulikin interview. You and I were chatting a little bit. Uh, apparently, you ran into one of those uh, lane police guys, the people that feel it's their job to stop people from merging before they want you to. Correct. Yeah, I didn't know there was a thing until you brought that up. So on Friday, I was headed up toward Alexandria for my other employment. Uh, once you get a little bit west of St. Cloud, kind of by St. John's University, there is a work zone on I-94. Left lane closed. There was quite a line of traffic in the right lane. I was in the left lane kind of driving up to the end of the the end of where the lane would end and you have to merge in like you're supposed to. And so I come up. And I kind of go down the hill a little bit, and there's this van in the left lane who is driving the speed of the traffic in the right lane, which is kind of bumper-to-bumper stop-and-go. So I come up on him, and I stop behind him, and I'm watching this guy, and he's not either making an attempt to get into the right lane, nor is he actively trying to to move forward in any reasonable manner to to the end of the where the lane is going to close he's just driving with it you know if the right lane moves a little bit he moves a little bit when the right lane stops he stops and it's like there was still about half a mile of lane before the closure and i'm just losing my mind at this dude like what are you doing with a lot of of language that i can't use on air well it just why are they why are you being such a jerk man why did the MnDOT have the sign say merge at the end right uh, uh yeah it said yeah you know merge take turns coming up to that and this i i didn't understand what this guy was doing because there was still as i said like half a mile and so you know now you can imagine i'm stuck crawling behind this guy for half a mile until the lane ends with him just kind of like I said, you know, the right lane moves a little bit. He moves a little bit. When the right lane stops, he stops. And I don't under, like I said, too, he's not trying to get, he's not looking for a space to get over because several spaces opened up and he made no effort to take them. Well, you know, it's just one of those guys who's a pathetic loser who basically says, no, I don't care what Midnot and the law says. I want everyone to do it my way. And I'm sorry, Troopers, you need to pull these guys over and give them a ticket for reckless driving because that's, you know, you're, A, you're going to get accidents, and B, it's it's basically, you know, it's just pathetic losers who feel it's their job to basically dictate how everyone has to do things they want to. Because once again, I want to make sure we say for the record, the legal thing to do is wait till the zipper merge at the end and merge then. That's what MnDOT says. That's what the law says. You try to stop that because I ain't. You can't do cutsies. This is kindergarten snack time. You can't cutsie in line. Shut up. Go deal. Go talk to a counselor about your 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 the regrets you have in your life and stop being a jerk to everyone else. Nine five two. Speaking of which, hey, Mike Lindell. Um, this is the latest story from him. My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell complained on Tuesday that he's been. Forced to borrow millions of dollars over the past three months. Um, During a telethon for 16 fake electors in Michigan, Lindell uh, revealed he no longer has access to the wealth he once had. He previously said he borrowed $10 million to keep his company afloat. They've taken me down just in a bigger way. I've had to borrow millions of dollars this summer. 
I've never been in debt like this in a long, long time. Oh. When they weaponize the government against us, no, do, 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 the only person who was a cabal was you, man. Dude, you're trying to overthrow a legitimate election. And you keep telling us, you have this evidence, I've got evidence. Heck, you even said, if anyone can prove this evidence is not real, and someone did, and you said, I don't want to pay you. At that point, you would say to yourself, I have made a horrible mistake. I want to apologize. Forgive me. Instead, you're not doubling down. You're not tripling down. You're like 10 timesing it down at this point. And I, I just... I feel sorry for you because you're going to lose your company, man. You're going to lose your company and that's jobs and that's people. And it's sad, but we have said this from the beginning. You had an option. If you had evidence to present the evidence, you could have a press conference. You didn't, you just kept putting it off and putting it off. And now here you are. That is your bed. You have made it. Enjoy your nighttime sleep. 952-946-6205. David the Trucker is joining us here. He wanted to chime in on the lane blockers issue. Welcome on in, David. Hey, hey, thanks, Matt. Um, truckers often do what that guy was doing, and the reason truckers do it is because some people don't know how to merge, and they they won't let you in, and you know how this goes. Yeah. So the, the guy that's slowing people down is allowing the, the lane that, that is still open to get up to speed so they can go. And then people will merge in as they can merge in and, and they can go. They don't have to wait till the end of the, where they get to the barrier to try to merge in. So that's what, when drunkers do it, that's why they do it. So this guy, I have no idea, but uh, that's how it works. Well, and, and thanks, David. I appreciate the phone call. Thanks for listening. MnDOT says you're supposed to do it at the end. And by the way, don't be a jerk. Let the trucks in there. I mean, it's, it's, you're not, you're, you're, just don't be a jerk. Let the trucks in there. Um, but no, it, it, MnDOT wants you to wait till the end and, and you should, and then you just do a zipper merge because everywhere else in the freaking country does it that way. Yeah. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Hey, back to school time. Uh, my, speaking of driving, be careful on the roads, watch for the kiddos, watch for the buses. Um, the, today I'm going to read, this is from, first of all, the Washington post when classes resume after labor day, Amber Lightfeather won't have to worry about where her children's next meals will be coming from. They'll be free. Minnesota, New Mexico, Colorado, Vermont, Michigan, Massachusetts will make school breakfasts and lunches permanently free to all students starting this academic year, regardless of family income, following the footsteps of California and Maine. Several other states are considering similar changes in congressional support want to extend free meals to all kids nationwide. They won't do it. They won't do it nationwide. They'll be, they'll be sitting there, not feeding hungry is what Jesus wants us to do. And that's just, yeah, so. Lightfeather, who has four kids who attend public schools in Duluth, said her family has sometimes qualified for free or reduced-priced meals, but would have to have pay for the upcoming school year if Minnesota had not made the change. Her earnings as a hospital worker and her husband's as a tribal employee would have put them over the limit. Last year, the family was paying $260 a month for school meals for all four kids 
who are now uh, the the um, at the ages of 10, 13, 16, and 17. So let's do a little Matt's math corner here. 260 times nine as far as months. We just saved her family alone $2,340. Thank you, DFL. Thank you, Governor Walls. You know, $2,300 a month. Outstanding. She felt so strongly that she testified in the Minnesota school lunch bill when it came before the legislature. Students hugged Governor Walls, a former teacher, when he signed the law into the Minneapolis Elementary School in March. I was crying when I found out that they had finally passed it. I just didn't I didn't just go and testify for my own kids. I testified for every kid who could benefit. Schools nationwide offer free meals to all the at, at the height of the pandemic, which sent participation soaring. But when federal aid ran out, in spring of 2022, most states reverted to free or discounted meals only for kids who qualified. That left out families who weren't poor enough, stigmatizing those who were and added to the grow, uh, growing school meal debt. We know that students learn better when they are well nourished. Said Emily Honer, a nutri- director of nutritional programs at the University Department, or the excuse me, the Minnesota Department of Education. We know that students uh, are that students a lot of time don't know where their next meal is going to be coming from. We're taking that fear away. Outstanding. Now turning towards Axios Twin Cities. Lunch money is the thing of the past for the vast majority of Minnesota kids going back to school this fall. Uh, the new universal school meals state law provides no cost breakfast and lunch to Minnesota's 800,000 plus students, regardless of the family income. Minnesota is one of six states making school meals free starting this academic year, bringing the total to eight. Supporters say they'll move there, will address food insecurity and make life easier for parents. The start of the pandemic, federal law officers expanded the program that covered the cost of breakfast and lunch for low-income students to include all pupils. The benefit for the all expired last year, the burden for paying for school meals, which cost between $1 and $5.50 at schools across the state last year, returned for a million kids nationwide. This year, the DFL-controlled legislature opted to permanently adopt the policy at the state level, extending the perk to two-thirds of school children who didn't previously qualify for free or reduced lunch meals. The estimated $380 million in state funding over the first two years, which costs expected to grow in the future. Critics have questioned whether paying for food for high-income families who can afford the meals is good use of taxpayer money. Well, you know, they don't have to eat the meals. They can bring their own. Knock yourself out. I, 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 I think, you know, I'm tired of people trying to find some way to say, well, this is wasting our money. No, it's feeding kids. And I don't care if the kid's rich. I don't care if the kid's poor. Just give them the damn meal. You know, that's the Christian thing to do. I don't know if you've studied the, the whole Bible thing, conservative Christians, but uh, feeding people, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of one of those things we're supposed to just do. And this does it. So thank you, DFL. Students opting for the free meal will have to take all items offered in a preset plate or tray in, in school that offers choices of entrees and salads. At least three items, including a fruit or a vegetable, in order to, for the school to be reimbursed, per guidance from the Minnesota Department of Education. Students do not need to apply or enroll in the universal meal program. The students still have to pay for second helpings, and a la carte options, including snacks, also require payment. So no problem there. Kids who are homeschooled or enrolled in viral, uh, virtual-only schools are not eligible, though. The two-year trial run during the pandemic where meals were free for all means many districts have a pretty good sense of how to prepare and for and meet the demand, said the Association of Metropolitan School Districts Executive Director Scott Kroonquist. Many districts are still struggling to hire enough nutritional workers, part of the broader school workforce crunch. Anoka Hennepin recently raised pay for such workers to $17 an hour. Oh, how benevolent for you. (laughs) 
Let's do Matt's Math Corner once again. Uh, 17 times 40 times 52 is $35,000 a year. That's the, the that's their that's their hey guess what you can work full time and get thirty five thousand a year. Thank God school lunches are free. School officials are urging families to fill out the paperwork that was used to determine whether they qualify for free or reduced lunch. Though in the past, and this is important, even though the school lunch is free, you need to fill out that paperwork because the forms are also used to allocate other types of funding and services for both families and schools. District leaders are cautioned that failure to collect that data could negatively impact the budgets moving forward. I understand you might say to yourself, man, that sounds like a little bit of a, sh- you know, a shame walk. No, it's not. It's, it's basically making sure your school has the funding it needs. And you're going to get the free lunch anyway. So if you are qualified for that, fill out that paperwork to make sure your school gets the money it needs. I want to make sure sometimes the change in our society is light speed. Light speed. Ten years ago, 12 years ago, I was on this radio station and we would talk about these angry, bitter school employees who would yank a tray of food out of an eight-year-old's hand and go dump it out in the garbage can saying, you're poor, you can't eat this. With a smile on their face. And they did this repeatedly across the state. And it was only when people said, man, why are you guys being such jackasses that people started saying to ourselves, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should find a better option. The pandemic provided that through the the free meals program. And guess what? People said, you know what? We could actually make this. It's actually not nearly as cost unaffordable as people say it is and be done. The beginning of this, the nucleus of this was these angry, I'm going to take a shot in the dark conservative jackasses sitting there that thought their job was to basically embarrass and ridicule young children in a school environment, not because of anything that they've done, but because of their family's circumstance. Well, good job. You are so horrible that now we've just decided to give everyone, including the rich kids, food. Nicely done. You're I hope that bitter and hatred that you you infused was worth it because for this case, it's going to be $2,600 a year for this one family. I'm sure they're going to be happy. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. The latest in the Lazaro case, we'll, we'll update that before we wrap up before the end of the show. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. All right, so we got some breaking news here. I'll get to that in a second. But Gisela Castro Medina, this is the woman that was helping Tony Lazaro uh, in his, um, um, you know, you know, recruiting young vulnerable girls to have sex with him. Uh, she was sentenced to three years in federal prison Tuesday. Uh, they, they, the sentence against her, who was in, in December of 2022, entered a guilty plea of one count of conspiracy to commit sex trafficking in minors, as well as the second account of obstruction in the tra- sex trafficking investigation. In exchange for a guilty plea, five of the counts of sex trafficking of minor will are dropped against her. So she is going to jail for three years in that case. A quick side note, neither one of them drag queens. Neither one of them transgender. Just horrible people. Anyway, uh, Scott McFarland, CBS News. Uh, this is Tario. 
About November 3rd, 2022, Tario said my candidate lost. Now, they changed the story now that they're in court, aren't they? Tario says he used his social media against a better judgment. He said he saw temperatures rising as January 6th approached. Tario acknowledges it was wrong to compare fellow Proud Boys uh, Dominic Pozzola to George Washington. Yeah, I think that, that that's wrong. Tario says he was not receiving major backlash from followers for saying the election was not stolen. Tario, like many January 6th defendants, talks about the struggle of being in the solitary confinements during pre-held detention. Oh, boo-hoo, kitty. Traitors to this country can rot in a cell. As Tario raps remarks, defense initiates another possible speaker before Judge Tim Kinn issues the sentence. As he concludes, Mark Tario has appeared to choke up a bit. So did his pro, uh, proud boy co-defendants last week. Brief recess, Judge Tim Kelly issues the sentence. Uh, Judge Kelly echoes the statements from prior January 6th cases. What happened on January 6th physically damaged property, hurt people. They have physical injuries, and no doubt they have struggled mentally. They are the heroes. What happened that day broke our previously unbroken tradition of peaceful transfer of power. It's going to take time to fix it. Judge then says, what happened that day did not honor our founders. It's the kind of thing that they wrote the Constitution to prevent. Mr. Tario was the ultimate leader of the conspiracy. The people he assembled played critical roles, important roles, in breach after breach after breach. He's not being president in D.C. did some, some strategic purposes. It allowed Tario to, uh, to attempt to insulate himself, the judge says. The judge quotes Tario about January 6th. Make no mistake, we did this. Judge says Tario's criminal history does not cover Mr. Tario in glory. As he did in prior Proud Boys sedition conspiracy cases, J Judge Tim Kelly says... The terror enhancement in sentencing guidelines overstates the intent of the case. He contrasts this case with efforts towards blowing up buildings. Judge will not give Tario the 33 years the government sought, though, the judge says. Judge says this case is an outlier even among the January 6 cases. Judge is being much more verbose in his hearing than with the other Proud Boy cases. Probation com, uh, recommends uh, 17 years in pro, uh, uh, prosecution recommends 17 years in this case. Defense wants less than 15 years in prison. The judge calls Tario to the podium. The judge has sentenced Proud Boy seditious conspiracy defendant Enrique Tario to 22 years in prison. Rot in jail. Rot in jail. Fantastic. You do not try to overthrow the government of this country and then claim that you love this country. That's... That's that's the crazed man who's trying to kill his ex-girlfriend while insisting that I love her better than anyone else. That's that's what that is. You you are traitors to this country. You try to overthrow the government of the United States. You all need to go to jail. And if you know anyone who still hasn't been prosecuted, call that FBI and turn them on in because traitors need to be treated as traitors. I saw the story I posted this morning. All these guys are now running for their lives because they know the gig is up. Good. Put them in jail. Lock them up. No. No one gets off the hook. Native Root Trader is up next. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see you.